Lo and behold, in God's kindness, we find ourselves in Matthew 9, which is surprisingly a story about Jesus. So I hope it encourages your heart. Let me read our verses this morning. One paragraph, verses 10 through 13. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, not to call the righteous, but sinners. Have you wondered how Americans would respond if Jesus came back to the world today? Now, I know that the Bible teaches that his second coming will be in the clouds with great glory and with angels. And there's not going to be any doubt or mistaking who he is. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what if even his first coming would have been to the United States? What if he would have come as a baby and been raised here and then preached his message and did his miracles in our country today? How would people respond to him? And the truth is that there is no, you know, uniform concept of Americans. Different Americans would respond in many different ways. But I just think of the kind of people that I grew up with. I feel like Jesus would have been rejected for being too self-righteous. You know, the Jews rejected Jesus for being too much of a, a sinner as we just read about in our passage this morning. He hung out with sinners and tax collectors. But the more common refrain that I am accustomed to hearing is that Christians are too self-righteous, that Christians are too holy, that who do you think you are? I mean, you live a life different from the sins that are celebrated from the, from the world. The world celebrates certain sins and Christians refrain from those sins and go away from those sins. And so who exactly does Jesus think he is to tell us about the sin that our culture embraces? In this sense, the American culture is very much different than the Israeli culture, at least in the New Testament. The Jewish culture in the New Testament was not one that celebrated sin, but one that celebrated in their mind righteousness. The problem with the, the Jewish people, as described in the New Testament, was not one of rampant immorality like we would think of immorality. It was not one of, of sexual promiscuity or the language and the covetousness and the, the greed and materialism that so marks our culture and marks our society. The celebration of the indulgences of the flesh. You could say it that way. I mean, so much of American culture is built on the celebration of the indulgences of the flesh and the Bible condemns. And so it seems likely when if Christ were to come to our culture, that we would reject him for being too much like those people that like holiness. <laughs> In contrast, the Jewish world 
didn't celebrate the indulgence of the, of the flesh like we think of. The Jewish world celebrated the sanctification of the flesh, the holiness of the flesh, the keeping of the, the law, the fastidious devotion to the sacrifices and the, the tithes and all of the rituals that are around the Old Testament. That's what they celebrated. And so they rejected Jesus because he didn't embrace their concept of holiness. So in that sense, I see a huge difference between our world and, and their world. Both result with the death of Christ, of course. <laughs> Both result with his rejection, although for somewhat different reasons. And, and yet you see a change even, I perceive a change even now, where a common accusation against Christians now is not so much that they are too self-righteous and too holy, but rather, it's almost <laughs> reverting back to this kind of story, rather that there's too many sinners around Christians today. You know, what's wrong with you Christians? You're, you're spending time with sinners. Don't you know any better? And of course, it's probably the same truth that was in the Jewish world too. My mind always goes back to Luke 7 where John the Baptist sent messengers to Jesus. This is one of my favorite New Testament passages that John the Baptist sent messengers to Jesus to ask him, are you really the savior? And you remember Jesus's response. He healed everybody. And the messengers went back to tell John the Baptist, looks like the savior to me. <laughs> and then Jesus turned to the Pharisees and gave them one of the most interesting rebukes. He tells them, John the Baptist came and he didn't, touch alcohol. He didn't spend time with sinners. He ate locusts and stood in the water and shouted at everybody to repent. I mean, you want to talk about the street preacher with the bullhorn and the sign with flames on it. That's John the Baptist is the New, the New Testament picture of that. And Jesus tells the Pharisees, but you, do, you wouldn't listen to him. You said, who is this guy who's so fastidious, who won't eat anything except his own approved food. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? How self-righteous is that kind of guy? And Jesus rebukes them for that. And then he says, I come right after John the Baptist. <laughs> and why did they reject Jesus? Because he's with sinners and tax collectors. Which way do you want to argue this? Is Jesus' response. In fact, he tells them what one translation even describes in the uninspired headings over the section as the parable of the brats, which I love. <laughs> Jesus tells them, you're like the kids in the marketplace. And they played a happy song and you wouldn't dance. And he played a sad song and you wouldn't cry. What do you conclude? That you just don't want to play with me. That's what you conclude. And that's what Jesus is encountering here in Matthew 9. The Pharisees don't want to be around Jesus because they hate him. That's the problem. But they mask that hatred with different excuses. Sometimes the excuse is why they rejected John the Baptist. You're so self-righteous. Who exactly do you think you are? But in this encounter, they're rejecting him because he's around sinners. I mean, do you understand? That is the objection to Jesus, the Pharisees level right here. You are spending too much time around sinners. The people society says should have no place in it. That's who you're going to. How dare you? And this story begins in verse 9, which we looked at last week, was Jesus calling Matthew to follow him. And this whole story is under 
underscoring the power of Jesus Christ. And the power of Jesus Christ is on display through all of chapter 8. It's, remember, flowing out of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus tells the Jews, everything you've heard about God and religion is wrong. Reject what the Pharisees say. I have something better and true. The result of the sermon was people saying, who has this kind of authority? And then Matthew 8 is all of these miracles designed to show that Jesus has this kind of authority. Matthew 9 is all these miracles designed to show that Jesus uses that authority to do one thing. And that thing is to forgive people of their sins. It starts in Matthew 9 with him healing the paralytic. And he says, your sins are forgiven. To demonstrate I can do that, take up your mat and walk. And he leaves the room. And then Jesus puts that new authority on display by healing a tax collector. We looked at this last week, but there is no worse person in the Jewish society than a tax collector. There are Gentiles that are in their mind horrible people. But as far as the Jews go, the tax collector is as bad as it gets. And it might be helpful for you to just have a little intellectual exercise this morning and you ask yourself, who are the really bad people in our society that we should say we have, should have no part of anything? And I've asked a couple of people that question this week and I got the same answer from everybody and it was a fascinating answer. ISIS, terrorists, like they're the, they're the wicked people. Like there, if, you, if you, we're going to identify one group of society that is wicked and should have no place in civilized society, it's those those terrorists. And I mean, I get the point of that, but I just can't help but notice that that answer implies other people from other places. <laughs> There's not really a hard look in the mirror with that kind of answer. You might in your own heart ask yourself, who are the kind of people in our own society that are so contagious, so defiled that you would say there's, there's no room for them in the inn, so to speak. We would never be at a reputable place with that kind of person. That kind of person shows up, I'm walking out. That's in the Jewish world, the tax collector. And that's where Jesus goes, straight to him. And you can picture the exasperation of the disciples as couldn't you wait to save a tax collector next week? <laughs> like first save, I don't know, a scribe. That would be neat. <laughs> save one of the priests. Get somebody with some kind of Jewish street cred. <laughs> Not a tax collector. But that's where Jesus goes. And just appreciate in your heart before we even read the next verse what's happening here. Jesus has gone to the exact kind of person in their society that they would say should have no place at all. You can't be a Christian if there's those kind of people in the church. That's where Jesus goes. And he's going to build a church with those kind of people, by the way. So he goes to him and says, follow me. We looked at it last week. But <laughs> what's remarkable is where Jesus says, follow me too. Where's the first stop with this newfound parade of sinners? Matthew's house. And this is not so clear from Matthew's gospel. The other parallel accounts make that obvious, but they go to Matthew's house. That's where they are followed to. And Matthew throws a feast for Jesus. 
Again, this is the other parallel gospels describe this. Matthew throws a feast to celebrate his new conversion, to celebrate his new life. He was a tax collector hated by everybody, and now he's throwing a, a feast. This is like a, a party after a baptism. You invite everybody and, and you've been baptized and it's this form of celebration. You want everybody to see that you're now a, a Christian and you're following Christ with your life. That's this kind of party right here. And Jesus goes to it, of course, and he doesn't go to it reluctantly. He doesn't pop in and grab some club soda and dodge out the back door after a few minutes of shaking hands. Do you see what he does here? He goes in and he reclines at the table, it says, with many sinners and tax collectors. Reclining at the table, this is the, we've talked about this phrase before, it, it's after a meal in the Jewish culture, you don't get up from the table and, you know, you would, you would lay down and you would put your head on the person's chest who's next to you. And this is why seating arrangements were so strategic in the Jewish world because after dinner, you know, in the American world, after dinner, you'd stand up and you'd maybe go to the living room. After Thanksgiving, you might go for a walk and then you go and you watch football on the TV or something like that. And the seating changes and people are moving couch to couch throughout the afternoon. It's not the way the Jewish world was. After the meal, you would lay down, you'd put your head on the chest or even on the lap of the person next to you because they weren't sit often sitting on chairs even. And they recline, they're laying on each other all around the table. Now that's what Jesus is doing and he's not doing it with the high priest or the scribes or the Pharisees or even Joseph Israelite. He's doing it with a table filled with tax collectors. These are people that the Jews would not even eat with. The, the presence of a tax collector in the Jewish mind would defile the house. If you were showing up at a house and there was a tax collector in there, you would see you later. I can't go in there. I'd be defiled. And then he looked at the window and there's Jesus with his head on one of their chests. <laughs> it's an insane scene. That phrase tax collectors and sinners, Russ, it just sounds redundant. But Matthew is underscoring here, these are the worst of the worst. These are the people that you would not be caught dead with. And there Jesus is hanging out lying down on them. The Pharisees see this. By the way, why would Matthew throw a party with those people? Who else would he invite? <laughs> Does Matthew have any other friends? Does he have any respectable friends? This is all he knows. So Matthew wants to throw a party to tell people about Jesus. These are the kind of people that are going to show up. And the, I just love the scene so much because it shows you again that Jesus doesn't get defiled. He hugs the leper and Jesus doesn't catch leprosy. He hugs the tax collectors and Jesus doesn't become a Roman sympathizing, greedy extortionist. The leper catches holiness. These sinners catch holiness from Jesus. It really is a powerful picture of the sanctifying power of Jesus Christ. This is why the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, calls Jesus holy, innocent, and undefiled. It means it uses those words, which are all described of Old Testament sacrifices. They're supposed to be holy, innocent, and undefiled. You couldn't offer a, a blemished lamb for a sacrifice. If your lamb had a broken leg, he couldn't be a sacrifice. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. And in the Jewish mind, you would be defiled if you touched something that was unclean. If you would hang out with a tax collector, you would no longer be holy. You would no longer be undefiled. Well, Jesus, the power of Christ, 
is that he can hang out with those people and he doesn't become undefiled. He's not defilable. It's not possible for him to be defiled because he, God in human flesh, defines holiness. He is holiness. I mean, that's just the power of this scene. The book of Acts, one of the most common phrases for Jesus in the book of Acts is God's holy servant. A phrase we just let our eyes roll over, God's holy servant. That means that Jesus was never defiled, even though he put his head on Matthew's chest. Even though he was around the worst of the worst, he never once sinned. Now, what a contrast with the Pharisees. And let this contrast hit you. The Pharisees, they thought they were holy, not because of what was on the inside of them. They thought they were holy because they knew you don't go to lunch with Matthew. <laughs> they knew they were holy because they would never be with the kinds of people that Jesus is ever. How holy is a Pharisee? Holy enough to know that you don't hang out with those kind of sinners. And there's Jesus with those kind of sinners. This just breaks every circuit in their minds. It's just not possible. It's not possible. And so they sneak up on the place. And they have a question, verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, now the saw this is the Jesus reclining at the table with the sinners and the tax collectors. And I don't know how they saw this, Clearly, they weren't in the house. They're peering through the window. Part of, uh, I think, their beef is that they've moved from one house they were locked out of to another. <laughs> you know, they couldn't get in the house. Many of them couldn't get in the house where Jesus healed the paralytic. And now Jesus goes outside and they're following him. Somewhere in there, of course, in the front row. But I mean, they were locked out of one house and now they're locked out of another. Matthew didn't invite the Pharisees. <laughs> their names were not on the invitation list. And nevertheless, they see what's happening. And they asked the disciples, and you, you do got to wonder about the disciples' silence. You, if you notice when we read this, the disciples didn't answer the question. The Pharisees are really haranguing the disciples saying, you can't really be following Jesus. Do you see the kind of people he's with? How can you be so dumb to believe Jesus is from God when he's hanging out with those kind of people? You can't really believe that a godly person would be with those kind of people. And how are the Pharisees going to answer that? I mean, how are the disciples going to answer that? They don't have, a, they don't have an answer yet. They're, this is early on in, in the ministry of Christ. The disciples don't know how to answer this question. They're at a bit of a loss. And you could ask yourself that question. Someone, it's one of the worst things people in our culture today would say to a Christian is, oh, I can't be a Christian because you have those kind of sinners at your church. Look at who you're going to church with. Look at who, look at who else reads the Bible. I saw so-and-so quoting a Bible verse. I mean, ah, how hypocritical is that? There's no way I could believe in Jesus. And how do you answer that? I mean, you say something like, oh, we're all hypocrites. You all have shortcomings or whatever. That answer doesn't work for Jesus. Jesus can't say, oh, I can hang out with them because we're all hypocrites. The disciples don't know how to answer the question. And you know that because they don't answer the question. Or if they did, their answer wasn't good enough to make it into the Bible. (laughs) 
Well, it's true. I mean, their answer's not there. But when Jesus heard the question, and again, I think Jesus was inside, they were outside. How did Jesus hear the question? Well, the same way he heard the Pharisees' thoughts in their hearts earlier in chapter 9. I mean, Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts. He knows what they're saying. So he gets up and he has an answer for them. And what an answer this is. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. This is what is the great reversal in the Gospels. That everything the Jews thought about holiness was backwards. And Jesus begins to tell them this. You're all wrong, he's telling them. You're all wrong. What you think is holiness is actually nothing. And what you think is sin is actually opportunity for righteousness. Do you see how he's reversing their whole paradigm? He's basically telling them that they have their religious robes on inside out. (laughs) Nice shirt. I see the tag sticking out the back. Maybe that's happened to you, maybe not. Hopefully your spouse lets you know it before you walk out the door. I see you're wearing your favorite shirt. Did you notice it's on inside out? That's Jesus' response to the Pharisees. Oh, you're so proud of your holiness. You've got it backwards, my friend. Backwards. Those who are well don't go to see the doctor. Those who are well don't go see the doctor. I know there's like well checks in our culture. Well checks. Go to the doctor every year just to make sure. I reject that because of this verse. I don't go see the doctor because of this verse. (laughs) My doctors don't buy it. My wife tells on me. (laughs) Imagine that you don't like sick people. Should you go to medical school? Probably not. What if you don't like animals? Should you be a vet? What if you really don't like being around crime? Don't be a cop. What if you hate working on cars and getting your hands dirty? Don't be a mechanic. What if you don't like being around sinners? Christianity is probably not going to be the religion for you. Because the people that are drawn to Christ are the sinners. If you only want to be around good people, I suggest you find a religion that's focused on works righteousness. You might find some good people there. If you don't want to be around, I mean, again, if you don't want to be around a sick animal, don't be a vet. Genius. There's a lot of things you can do that don't involve that. And to take the analogy even further, pretend you are a doctor. And your your wife says, are you going to work today? And you say, no, I'm not going to work today. Why not? Because I don't feel sick. You're the doctor. Yeah, I'm I'm feeling totally healthy. If I went to work, I might catch something from one of my patients. Do you know last time I was in my office, everybody there was sick? I'm not going back there. That's the nature of Jesus' response. It's such a rebuke to the Pharisees. Hey, geniuses, they're sick people and I'm the doctor. That's how this analogy works. They're wounded. They are broken. They're defiled. They are the sinners in society. They're the ones that people don't have time for. They're the ones that are rejected by the world. And it's, it's, 
and Jesus is not painting them as the victims here, by the way, in any stretch of the imagination. This is not a victim-based culture, the Jewish world. He's not saying they're the real victims because they're neglected and their parents didn't have time for them or whatever. No, Jesus is pinning the blame right on them. They are the sinners. They are rejected because of their sin. They are the evil people. They are the wicked ones. They are defiled. It's nobody's fault, but their fault. But man, they're wicked and they can't blame anybody for it. Man, those people are so sinful. That's why he goes to lunch with them. Because they need forgiveness. Particularly, what do they need? They need righteousness. That's what they need. I want to keep sticking with the doctor sick person analogy. Because I have heard this verse used to justify Christians hanging out with sinners without giving them the gospel. Like hanging out with sinners, like, of course I can go to this party and of course I can do that. And of course I can be friends with these people because Jesus was friends with sinners and tax collectors, okay? I'm I'm sure it's not just me. I'm sure you've heard that argument used before too. Probably by somebody between the ages of 18 and 22. It's like the favorite Bible passage for college students. Okay, so how's your evangelism going in that context? So let's go back to the doctor analogy. You go to the doctor's office and you're sick and the doctor comes out and hangs out in the waiting room with you. You're watching the movie on the screen. You're reading Sports Illustrated. Doctor says, how's it going, you know? Redskins made the playoffs. I jest, of course. (laughs) And, And you have a conversation about sports and at some point you say, so you gonna help? Got any medicine? You want to take my blood pressure or something? I don't know. Doctor's like, no, no, you're sick. You're sick. I just, I hang out with sick people. That's what we're doing. Hanging out, having fun, being friends. That's absurd. Jesus is not hanging out, reclining with Matthew, being friends, period. He's there. The doctor-patient analogy is the analogy that Jesus uses. He's there because they need righteousness. And that's what he has. They need holiness. And that's what he has. This is why John writes, 1 John 3, verse 3, everyone who hopes in Christ purifies himself as he is pure. When you spend time with Jesus and you trust him and you hope in him, you become sanctified. You grow in holiness. You're not perfect and you still sin, of course, but you're growing in godliness. And so the whole chart here, the whole patient chart begins with a person realizing that they are sick, that they are the unrighteous ones, that they are the wicked person in the story. In whatever culture, you have to look in the mirror and realize you are the man, you are the woman, you are the one that is has the kind of sin in your heart that makes you defiled and that you don't belong in civilized society. That's the sin that's in your heart. You got to get there with your own self first. Those kind of people are not the others, they're the yous. And once you get there, then you're able to go to Christ for help because you recognize that if the world knew what was in your heart, they would keep you at arm's distance. If the world knew what was going on in your sinful mind and your, your perverted heart, they would say, stay away from me. But Jesus knows and he doesn't because he can, you know, read your heart. He knows what's in there and he doesn't say, stay away from me. He says, come to me if you realize who you really are. 
Then you come to Christ and by an encounter with Christ, you learn about him and you grow more like him as your sins are forgiven and you begin growing in sanctification. That's the encounter here. The sick people begin to get well. It doesn't mean that Matthew is going to be as godly as a really godly Pharisee. Nod, nod, wink, wink. He got saved five minutes ago. Give him some time. That's the image here. And this is so offensive to people who think that Christians shouldn't have anything to do with the sinners in society. Jesus doesn't end here, by the way. He goes on, verse 13 with what can only be described as a rebuke. In verse 12, you had the reversal. Verse 13 is the rebuke. Go learn what this means. That's an imperative. Jesus says, get out of here. Go study. Go read a book. Probably Hosea would be a good book to start with because he quotes it here. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's quoting Hosea 6.6. The Jews in Hosea's day were so fastidious with the sacrifices and wouldn't repent of their sins. They loved the Sabbaths and the feasts and the festivals and wouldn't repent of their sins. And Hosea says, why don't you go get a clue? Why don't you go discover that God would rather you know about him than do your so-called law keeping? The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings is the way it says in Hosea. It's also quoted in 1 Samuel 15. That's where Saul if you remember, was told very specific, uh, specific instructions from Samuel. Saul rejected them so that he could go offer a sacrifice that he thought he needed to offer. And Samuel says, do you think God really wants the smell of the, the heifer you offered more than the smell of obedience in your hearts? Of course not. God desires, notice how it said, the knowledge of God more than sacrifice. We often say the knowledge of God, you know, theology dilutes an affection for God or whatever. Not true. Jesus says the knowledge of God is where this begins. You need to learn about God. You need to learn theology to have right worship. That's what Jesus tells the Pharisees. Your problem is not in the worship department. I mean, your robes are just pristine. You got your best robes on for Sabbath worship. <laughs> but your heart is so wicked. You don't know anything about God because you're studying the sacrifices. Better to learn about God than the sacrifices. The Pharisees knew everything about the sacrifices, nothing about God. They could tell you 25 ways that Matthew could defile Jesus right now and zero ways that Jesus could help Matthew. That's how wicked they were. And it's a special kind of wickedness, my friends. Special kind of wickedness. It's the kind of wickedness that thinks it is righteous. It's the kind of wickedness that looks at a doctor helping a sick person and says, are you nuts? That person's sick. Leave them alone. And Jesus says, you have no idea how God thinks. God doesn't say leave them alone. God doesn't say be their friends either. God says they need forgiveness and the righteousness that comes through Christ. And Jesus ends his rebuke with this. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Luke finishes the sentence. Matthew just leaves it right there because it's focused on the call of Christ. Luke finishes the sentence. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's no salvation without repentance. 
And who's going to repent? The sinner. The religious leaders are upset, not with Jesus's miracles, appreciate that. They weren't so miffed that he could make the paralytic walk. They were upset that he said his sins were forgiven. They could live with him doing miracles. They could live with him walk. He can walk on water, good for him. Hopefully Peter drowns, but good for Jesus. But they could not tolerate Jesus forgiving wicked people their sins. That was a scandal. The scandal is that Jesus is saying the Pharisees are not going to get to heaven because they're not as sinful as the sinners. Why did the Pharisees need to be as sinful as the sinners? Because unless they were that sinful, they wouldn't come to Jesus for salvation. Do you get the logic? In other words, the morally decrepit, bankrupt, broken, wicked, evil sinner that would have no place in civilized society is closer to salvation than the self-righteous person who says, oh, I thank God that I'm not like those sinners. Now, in a vacuum, neither of them are going to heaven when they die. They're both on their way to hell. It's just that that morally bankrupt person is closer to salvation because he's at least in a position to repent from his sin when confronted with it. Meanwhile, the other category of person looks at the sinners in the church and says, I would want nothing to do with their Jesus because look at the horrible people that are there. In other words, they're too good to go to that doctor. They're too healthy for that doctor. Oh, I mean, there is no hope for that kind of person. No hope. You get a gunshot wound put in the back of an ambulance and they're driving you to Fairfax Hospital. Best hospital in the area. And on your way there, with one of your last gasps of breath, you tell the paramedic, I don't want to go to that hospital because it is filled with people who are really sick. Like the worst kind of sicknesses go to that hospital. I mean, people with serious gunshot wounds go to that hospital. And the paramedic tells you, you have a serious gunshot wound. Like, no, 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 no. I've seen the kind of criminals and gangbangers that go to that hospital with their gunshot wounds. Nope. Okay, where do you want to go? I want to go to my family practice doctor. All right, Saturday, 10 p.m. It doesn't matter. There's not sick people there. That guy likes me. Okay. Who's closer to getting treated? The gangbanger who goes to the Fairfax hospital or this self-righteous person with the gunshot wounds that wants to go to the family practice doctor Monday morning at 10, 15? Do you understand that a person who says, I can't be around Christians because of their sinners that they're around are so far away from salvation because they don't see their own gunshot wound. They don't see the log in their eye. Oh, the Pharisees were bleeding out. The Pharisees were so severely wounded by their sin, they would die in their sin. And they wouldn't go to the only doctor that could heal them. It's so sad. I think there is still a tendency in American churches to say, I'm talking in the church now, for American churches to have a problem that Jesus condemns good people, that Jesus condemns Pharisees. I know this in my own heart. I think of good people I know that aren't Christians, like family members that are just, they're such good people. They try so hard to be good. They're not Christians. 
but they want to be good. And it makes me so sad that they don't have forgiveness of sins. And you can let that go away in your heart where you're angry at God for not forgiving them. Why wouldn't God forgive them? They're such good people. It's sort of like saying, why can't Jesus forgive the Pharisees? They're trying so hard to be holy. But Jesus didn't come to forgive Pharisees. He didn't come to forgive the righteous, in quotes. He came to say that those who recognize their sin and come to him can be saved. I want to close just by noticing a verb tense here that's a little thing in the, the Greek that you might not notice, but it's so powerful. Jesus says, for I came. What? What is he talking about? When did he come? What his birth? When he was born into this world. And what did he come for? To forgive wicked people of their sins. This takes you straight back into eternity straight back into the heart of God, you could never say this about yourself. You could never say, this is the reason I was born. Nobody asked you. But Jesus does. He says, this is why I was born, because I want to forgive wicked, wicked sinners. This is the power of the gospel. In eternity past, in God's heart, he set his affections on wicked sinners to save them. This is the scandal of grace. This is why Christianity could be rejected by people because God in his heart comes after the worst of the worst and saves them. He doesn't just come to rescue them, although that's all it says here. We know this in the rest of Matthew's gospel. He comes to rescue them by dying for them. He comes to die on a cross for the worst of the worst. The gospel can make you walk. The gospel can make you follow Christ. And here we learn that the gospel can actually make a wicked, horrible sinner righteous by forgiving them of their sins. Lord, we're thankful that you are the saving God who gives us righteousness that's not of our own. You take the naked and clothe them in a king's robe. You take the worst tax collector and give him the righteousness of a disciple of Christ. You take the adulteress in Hosea and you offer forgiveness to her. You purchase her back. Lord, you are the loving God who wants to see sinners come to faith. I pray for anyone who's here this morning who has never trusted you. I pray that this morning they would see their sin, that today their eyes would be open, that they are the Matthew in the story while they think they're the Pharisee. Lord, we pray that we would give an accounting in our hearts right now of our sin and our eyes would turn to you knowing that you forgive sinners. So thankful in my own life, you made me aware of my sin. You made me aware of my arrogance and my idolatry, worshiping myself and serving myself. You showed me my wickedness so that I could see you. I pray that every heart in this atrium would have that same experience. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you for being with us today. And now, a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, emmanuelbible.church. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.